0: book nerds. It's Thursday, which means you've been waiting with bated breath for just this moment. It is The bookcase with
1: Kate and Charlie. I am the Kate part of the Kate and Charlie part. It's just Thursday, but now your week can begin. I'm Charlie Gibson, the the father of this (laughs) father-daughter duo talking books. And we've got an unusual book for you this week. It's a book of short stories. The name of the book is Neighbors. The author is a woman named Diane Oliver. What's unusual about it? First of all, she is just in effect being discovered as an exciting new author. And secondly, she's been dead for almost 60 years. She was born in 1943, and she died in a motorcycle accident at the age of 22. So... How did the world find this book? Kate, how did you find the book?
0: Well, so we have an email address set up for a publicist to send me emails about new books. And when I open this one and I said, Diane Oliver and Tayari Jones is, is blurbing her. Well, I got to find out who this person is. I've never heard of her. And then I, it turns out she's dead. So I, I'm now sort of intrigued and I wrote the publicist and I said, okay, so what are you offering? And he said, well, I don't know, take a look at the book and tell me what you think. And so I read the book and she was a revelation to me. I have no doubt that if Diane Oliver had lived to a ripe old age, she would be amongst the contemporaries of Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison. When I read the description of the book, it describes the first short story, which is called Neighbors, which is about an African-American child being sent as the first African American child to enforce school integration laws. And, you know, of course, you've all seen the pictures of the courageous kids walking the gauntlet to get to school. And that is how, what I associate with school integration. I had never thought about what it would be like in the household the night before you send that kid to school. What is it like for those parents to look at their child and say, I'm sending them tomorrow into hell? And I was so just blown away by that concept that I wanted to read the story just based on that. And she is an amazing writer. I loved
1: this book. It's 14 short stories. Only a few of them had been published before she died. She was at the Iowa Writers Workshop, which is a revered workshop. And I I think the first African-American woman to go there. But she wrote before Toni Morrison. I mean, you know, very early. Well, who knows what her legacy would have been had she lived. She writes in very simple but profound language, I think. As you mentioned, this first story is about the little boy, Tommy, and should the parents send him to school? They're worried that they will set back the cause if they don't, but do irreparable harm to Tommy if they do. And that is a very, very difficult choice. The second story, the closet on the top floor, is about a young woman named Winifred, who is an early Black student at a college, integrating that college, and she just can't. She can't swing it. It's too hard. She wanted to major in drama. She can't because she thinks, well, I'll always be playing the maids part. And eventually she gets just fed up and can't handle it anymore. The stories are so poignant. Hmm. And her writing, as I say, very simple but very, very good. Mm. Short stories, 14 of them. And it's a detective story as well. Not the short stories themselves, but a detective story about how this book came to print. An agent in the Great Britain, her name is Elise Dillsworth, and you're going to hear from her in a moment, read one of the stories in an obscure journal and thought, I wonder if there are more stories by Diane Oliver. Contacted the family. Sure enough, they had them squirreled away. There got to be a bidding war to get the short stories into print. And now they are with Tayari Jones writing the introduction. And Tayari Jones is such a treat. And her enthusiasm is so infectious for this book.
0: Diane Oliver was a revelation to her too. And frankly, when you read the introduction, don't skip, if you pick up this book, and I really recommend that you do, don't skip the introduction because Tayari Jones will have you marching in the Diane Oliver band by the time (laughs) you're done with it. And she's right to do so. It's a terrific book that I I couldn't put down.
1: Each of the stories, very different. There's one story that really, really hit me, which is called health service Mm -hmm. about a a woman who has no husband. He's not around. She gathers her kids. She's got all sorts of problems getting to the health clinic. She gets to the health clinic and then they don't see her. You know, she said somebody Mm -hmm. could be dying of an appendix and they wouldn't care. Mm -hmm. And then she has to think, oh, my God, can I do all this again? As I say, these stories were written in the early sixties. It oh it tears your heart up. Mm-hmm. And and she reappears later on in another story. But mostly they are independent stories. They are very, very good. We're gonna to talk to Tyari Jones, who who was so so driven to write the introduction for this book because she wants people to read it. Talk to Elise Dillsworth who was the detective who in effect found the extra stories and then Katie Racion, who basically brought this book to print. I love talking to all three of them, Kate.
0: It was quite a treat to talk to all three of them and to put together the story of Diane Oliver and so here we'll start with our conversation with the effusive and amazing professor and writer, Tayari Jones.
1: Tayari Jones, it's great to have you in the bookcase, and you write a rhapsodic introduction to Diane Oliver's book, Neighbors. Tell me her story, because her story itself is fascinating.
2: Well, you know, that was part of my fascination with this book is discovering her story and actually finding out how much she has in common with me, because I'm from Georgia. She's from North Carolina. She was one of the first Black students to go to the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, which at the time was known as Women's College. And then she went on to the University of Iowa to the Writers' Workshop. Now, you know, if Diane Oliver had lived, she would be 80 years old now. And so she went to the Iowa Writers' Workshop very early in the history of that really storied institution. And she published several stories in her lifetime. Well, a handful, but she was only 22 when she was killed in a motorcycle accident. So if you think of publishing even three or four stories by the age of 22, having attended the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and she was a Black woman, that just gives you just a feeling of greatness that just was cut off too soon. That's why it's such a pleasure and a treasure to have this book. How did you come to Diane Oliver's work yourself? You know, I get a lot of books in the mail. So it basically came to me over the transom, and this was very early in the process of its publication. So it was just in a plain black and white wrapper, you know, no blurbs on the cover telling me how amazing it was and who all liked it. No beautiful artwork. It was just basically a stack of pages. And I just picked it up and looked through it as I was eating my breakfast one day, and I was all in. I can't tell you how all in I was from the very first story. And I had this feeling of like, why have I not heard of this writer? Why do you think we have not heard of her up until this point? There's no reason why we've been deprived of this great voice for these many years. But I think the reasons could be as simple as she had not completed a full book or what was thought mm-hmm. to be a complete book when she died at the age of 22. You know, she had stories published here and stories published there. And also, you know, it was the 60s. It was not exactly a renaissance for African-American women writers. You know, but you think about it. She is roughly the same age as Alice Walker. Alice Walker would have been her contemporary. And she was publishing years before Morrison published The Bluest Eye. Mm. The Bluest Eye was published in 1970. Mm. So she would have been a trailblazer even had she lived. Mm. And I also think it's worth pointing out that as our understanding of what American literature looks like and is. As we change our understanding and inclusivity, our usual impulse is to change our ways going forward to champion young writers. And it's just as important, you know, as they like to say, not just to pay it forward, but to pay it back Mm. and to look at who we may have
1: missed. The amazing part to me is how insightful her stories are about the early days of the civil rights movement. And to that extent, they are sort of dated, and yet they are so contemporary that you can relate to them today just the same way you could have when she was 22. And there's 14 stories in this book. Do you have a favorite?
2: You know, I was grabbed, as I said, from page one, because the title story Neighbors is about a family who is on the verge of sending their little boy to be the first black child, the only black child at the newly integrated elementary school. They thought the other families in the neighborhood were going to send their kids. And then when it comes to the day of, their little boy is going to be all alone and they're being harassed. People are throwing rocks in the window. And it was a story I thought I knew. Right. We've all seen little Ruby Bridges, adorable in her pinafore, bravely going to school. But this family says, hmm, wait a minute. Is this really our child's responsibility? Is it our baby's responsibility to save this nation? And they choose their baby. So she takes us away from what we have come with the benefit of history to think of as the obvious moral choice. But they ask themselves a more personal moral choice. Hmm. Is it right to do this to babies? And you cannot inhabit the world of this story and find this answer easy or obvious.
0: I wanted to ask you about a quote I read in the intro. A friend of yours said to you, imagine the world as we know it is over. Now imagine the people of the future trying to sort out the wreckage. Well, that's what books are for, to let the new people know what the hell happened I'm interested as to why you felt that was an important quote for Diane Oliver's work specifically. How do you feel like Neighbors and Other Stories relates to that sort of time capsule philosophy about books?
2: I felt that one of the remarkable things about these stories, particularly the ones about the civil rights movement, is that she didn't subscribe to the respectability politics of the era. And I don't say that in a way that's critical of those who did subscribe. I mean, the politics of respectability was that by putting our best foot forward as Black people, we would then earn kind of the respect of the nation. I mean, that was part of the thinking behind the Harlem Renaissance even. And I, I'm i not one that believes that that is not at times effective, mm-hmm. but it is also very important to have a history of an experience that. Is true to that experience. I like to say to my students, characters that feel like they live in the world, not like they live in the book. Mm-hmm. And just even the story Neighbors that I talked about early, the idea that a family would say, no, we won't send our child to the school. That is a remarkable experience that should be recorded. And she does that throughout. There's the story what is the title of the one, when the woman, she's working as a maid and her husband comes back with the blue car. Traffic jam, traffic traffic jam. And she's working as a maid and she has this husband who is kind of a mess, but she adores him. And she has so many children to take care of. And she's trying to keep her job. And her husband comes home and he's driving a brand new car. They are so poor. They have nothing. And he comes back and he says, I'm going to ride you in my new car. And I think that another writer would have her boldly maybe, you know, tell him about himself and how their children need food, they don't need a car. But you know what? She wants her husband. She wants that affection. And so the character responds as though she does not know that we are watching. And that is what gives these stories their insight, is that the characters are completely vulnerable on the page. You almost feel like they want you to know what happens but they don't fear being judged by you. Mm. They merely want to be understood. Hmm. She has such a range in the characters, but they all seem recognizable and identifiable. Mm -hmm. That is an amazing thing because the people do some really wild things in this book. These people do some (laughs) wild things. And she convinces you after you read it, you think, well, you know, sometimes people do wild things. And she kind (laughs) of helps you understand why people, I do think that racism can drive people to madness. Mm. I think that experiencing racism can drive people to madness and being racist can drive people to madness. And I feel that in many ways, she is trying to help us sort out what it means to be American.
1: So where does a 22-year-old get this kind of range? That's what amazed me all the way through.
2: She had been living 22 years. I mean, 22 is not nothing. I think that's mm-hmm. important to think about. I mean, she clearly was a prodigy. But look at like all these young characters. She can write them from the point of view of someone who had been recently young. She is not nostalgic about youth. You know, uh, Margaret Atwood once said about, what did she say about children? She says, children do not find one another to be cute to each other. They are Mm life-sized. And I think that is true for Diane Oliver, like when she's writing about the young woman who is integrating the college and she's become so neurotic, like her parents think that civil rights is a game and they integrate things almost as a matter of principle, their hobby and Oliver is able to get right next to that terrified, neurotic young woman because at 22, she had just finished college herself a few years ago. Those details Mm. were fresh. And I think that is what she puts on those pages of those particular stories. So in some stories, I think her youth made the stories possible. And then there are others that are, I think, the insight, like the insight she has on marriage. I was really quite shocked buy it because she's 22 years old. She's never been married, particularly Spiders Cry Without Tears, where the main character is a white woman who works in a flower shop. You know, she's a fairly modest means. She's one of those women that have, they come from a family lineage, they have a name, but no money. And she marries Hmm. a mysterious man who turns out to be Black, but doesn't quite look it, but sort of looks it. And so even... Her braveness, Oliver's braveness in writing an interracial love story where the black person is the one with the money,
0: mm. Mm. but also that complex concept of a marriage that is ultimately not what was promised. Are
2: any marriages what a promise.
0: Well, when I was twenty two, <laughs> I sure thought so. <laughs> That's
2: what I was just thinking. I was, yes, <laughs> or that living that soft life isn't so soft after all. The fantasy of marrying the rich man and being subservient to the memory of his sainted dead wife. Mm -hmm. And so she takes a story that is written so close to Loving versus Virginia about an interracial couple. And the interracialness is not even the problem.
1: I'm curious. So you read the book, you see it, was it sent to you with the hope that you would write an introduction?
2: No, I was asked to write the introduction, but I wasn't committed to doing it because my own book is overdue. And I promised my agent I wouldn't do any more things. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not allowed to check the mail. I can't do anything. I have to write this book. But when I got Neighbors and I read it, I knew I had to lend my voice. Tyler Jones,
0: you have you have some game some game. You've you've, you've written some stuff. So I'm interested in how an established writer such as yourself, when you come upon a writer like this, that changes, well, your canon a little bit, how do you pick up the work of Diane Oliver as a writer and put her in your bag? Like, how does she influence your work moving forward?
2: Well, one, I think that reading this book reminds me as a writer to be candid and to be brave. If she could be this candid At 22, in the time when she was writing, certainly I, too, can do my best to tell the truth. You know how June Jordan said, you can't write a good poem if you don't tell the truth? Hmm. I feel like this this work is an admonition to tell the truth and to be brave in form, Hmm. not to try to stay in one lane. As I was saying, as you get older... You start understanding yourself as an artist to have a particular voice, to have a particular subject matter. Your readers have come to expect it of you. Your editors have come to expect it of you. And you owe it to yourself to defy expectations if that feels organic. So all the stories are not wildly experimental. I think we can tell that she does have certain interests that keep coming up. Mm-hmm. Like she seems very interested in at what cost integration. She is also very interested in the fallibility of romantic love. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. none of these romances work out. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, so it's not that she avoided her interest, but she wasn't limited by her interest.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And also I like the... um unabashedly southernness of the stories. Yeah. You know, I'm from Atlanta. I am a Georgia peach. And when I was earlier in my career, I moved to New York because I felt like that's where publishing was. Mm. And I remember one time I was in a coffee shop in Brooklyn and I looked around the coffee shop and I saw so many major American writers all in there drinking their coffee. And I said <laughs> to myself, I said, self, You know, the expression, there's something in the water. If there's something in the water, we're all drinking the same water. We may be from different places around the country, some people from different places in the world, but we all are drinking the same water. And that is one of the reasons why I moved home, Mm -hmm. because I'm trying to bring regional literature back. Mm -hmm. And I feel that this is a Southern piece of writing. And usually when you identify work regionally, people think you're limiting it. They love to say, oh, this is more than just Southern writing. This is more than just Black writing. But I say there could be nothing more. This is the most writing. Mm -hmm. The specificity is where it's beauty and insight. It's from where they spring. And I am just honored to be part of that tradition.
1: When I picked up this book, I thought, I don't know. And then I read your introduction and I thought, man, if she's this enthused, I'm going to be this enthused. (laughs) And I came away <laughs> feeling exactly that way. Such yeah, a pleasure absolutely. to talk to you.
0: Yeah, Tayari Jones. thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Our conversation with Tayari Jones, you'll hear in a minute from Katie Racian and Elise Dillsworth. And I just want to say one of the things I love most about talking to all three of these folks is how much passion they bring to finding undiscovered voices, not just the undiscovered voices of the future, but the undiscovered voices of the past. That had never occurred to me as a
1: responsibility of people who work in literature. What struck me so much about these stories, she was so young... So these stories were written in the early 60s, at just at the beginning of the civil rights movement, six years after Brown v. Board, which was 1954, the integration of the schools in Topeka. And she writes this. The stories are dated in that you can tell it's that period of time, but they are still pertinent to today. Her themes are universal. She's something. All three of these folks are messianic about her writing and want you to read them. So we'll get back, talk to uh, Elise Dillsworth and to uh, Katie Racion after this.
3: Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast early and ad-free on Wondery+. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today.
4: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. The Girlfriend is a free weekly e-newsletter from AARP built on the belief that girlfriend power is everything. It offers stories for Gen X women related to sex, health, beauty, travel, and money. Whether it's a shoulder to cry on or help navigating the next phase of your life, visit thegirlfriend.com to subscribe. You can also join the Girlfriend Book Club, a closed Facebook group that hosts live author interviews and free book giveaways. Again, it's thegirlfriend.com, because everybody needs a girlfriend.
0: Katie and Elise Dillsworth. It is so amazing to have you here to discuss the work of Diane Oliver. And I want to start with Elise because I read a quote from her that said, the detective work which led me to the representation of Diane Oliver's literary estate. It sounds like there's a story there. What is the detective story and how did you end up representing her estate so many years after her death?
5: So I came across Diane Oliver when I read a piece in the Bitter Southerner magazine online, which was written by Michael Gonzalez and about Diane, her life and the six stories which had been published. And I was amazed I'd never come across her before. I have studied African-American studies as a my master's here in the u k and she never came up in my you know book reading list or in even any of my further reading to my shame. I was just intrigued, so I um got a copy of the anthology which was mentioned and read Neighbours and you know, like everyone that's read that story, I was just blown away myself by you know the observation and just the quiet power of that story and I wanted to find out more about her, so it then became a question of doing the detective work, um, writing to the various journals, which were still in print, like the Sawani Review, to see whether I could find any leads there. And then it was just a case of you know, trying to follow leads, look at addresses online, sort of make some geographical connections, read obituaries and try and find some family members. And then I found Kim McGregor and got in touch with her just based on the sort of location and everything. I thought maybe this is a relation. And she turned out to be Diane's niece, which was great. And then she put me in touch with her mother, Cheryl Oliver. You know, I said, you know, do you have any unpublished stories? And it was literally, yes, we've got a box full. I was like, send them to me. And um, I said, I'd just love to try and get it back into print, even on the basis of not read those stories. But I just thought, well, they're not going to be worse. And she's such a good writer. Hmm. Read these stories and just realized, yes, there's enough collection for you here. And they agreed. And I was very happy that they trusted me with their work. And from then, I mean, my job as a literary agent is sort of to discover new voices. But also I'm
1: interested in rediscovering voices And Katie, had you ever heard of Diane Oliver? And once this collection of short stories was brought to your attention, why were you so compelled to make sure that the publisher you were working for at the time was behind the book? That's an
6: excellent question. I'd never heard of Diane's work, but I very much trust Elise and Elise's taste. So when I received the submission, I love short story collections as well, which, you know, in publishing can be a little bit of a controversial move as an editor, but I really I've published several of them and I really love them. And I read the stories and was just blown away. And it's both Diane's craft and her attunement to her characters, the settings, The development of these stories that felt so rich and complex, but also, you know, straightforward and easy to read. She was just a brilliant, radiant talent. I felt really that these were just pieces of history as much as they were brilliant stories and, you know, an incredible read on a literary level. It felt important to me. Pieces of American history, African-American history that just felt too important to ignore. So I really, really wanted them.
0: How does one go about editing an author that has been dead for almost 50 years, especially when you're looking at stories that have appeared in previous publications? Like at that point, is it gospel
6: and you can't edit it? I wouldn't really touch an author's work without their consent. Mm. So, you know, Diane is long past. So really, it was like looking for egregious errors. And there were sections of the stories that maybe in the scans of the original documents hadn't transferred. So I spent this glorious holiday season in my living room (laughs) in Brooklyn, basically converting the PDFs into Word documents and then kind of cross reading and cleaning it up and just really enjoyed that process because I felt like I was like immersed in Diane's work. It was very much surface level, kind of cleaning up any typos fixing, you know, where like a a character's name might have changed in the course of a story, but perhaps Diane hadn't changed it throughout fully. So things like that, but really it was more in the curation of the actual stories themselves, which was just a totally fun
1: process because we had some real synchronicities. So Elise, you're an agent representing somebody who has been dead for almost 60 years. How do you do that?
5: Again, it's just trying to honour her and it's just working very closely with the estate. So it's handled by her sister. So it's just, you know, ensuring that they're happy and I've got their trust and they trust me to get it to the right publisher and make sure it's published in the right way. I mean, in the UK, and maybe not so much in the States, some publishers here have classics lists. So that's for authors who are long dead and they bring out their works. But I think with this and what Katie saw was I didn't want it to sort of be on a backlist. So you know, to be published almost like a debut, which is what, yeah. you know, Katie, her vision was, which was great
1: with her. Let me put both of you in Diane Oliver's shoes. I wonder what her reaction would be to the fact that finally her short stories, after she's been gone for so long, are published together in a compendium. I mean, I wonder if she'd be saying, well, it's about damn time, <laughs> or, or thinking, what took you so long? <laughs>
6: <laughs> I agree. I mean, that's a question that, I mean, in a way, I'm honored because it's come about at a time when, you know, it should. Like, it, she should have been published. She should have the debut publication process and the reception that she deserved then. It's unfortunate that it is so long after she's died, but better late than never. And I hope she would be very happy. I hope she would feel very proud of herself and that her family are proud of her and her agent is fighting for her in the world and that she she has two incredible prestigious publishers. I sent some flowers to Cheryl
5: for publication day to say happy publication day and I said you know, I think Diane will be smiling mm-hmm. at all of us, you know and I think, I I I like to think Diane was, was saying yeah, about time but I think she always knew something would happen and if it did, you know, I think it's out in the world, she did what she had to do and we're all You know, the world is just blessed to be getting to read her stories. And I'd like to say that, you know, also as well as having UK and US publications, it is truly international. We've sold Germany, Italy, Sweden, France, and I'm sure we're going to get more deals. So, you know, it truly is international. And I think Diane would be, I hope she'd be very proud. I am very proud and it's been, you know, a privilege and a real pleasure.
0: I want to ask each one of you, Katie, I'll start with you, your favorite story and why. Oh, the hot
6: seat. Okay, I I have several favorites. (laughs) The closet on the top floor is one that just, I think, sucker punched me when I read it. I was on the edge of my seat and just seeing this incredible, horrific depiction of a student disappearing in this very surreal way, very smart way. But I have to say... Frozen Voices has <laughs> a special place in my heart. I, I When I read that story, I couldn't believe what I was reading. And I, the feat of the, the re- repetition and this kind of like hypnotic entrancement and the, the horror, mm. you know, it was just one of those moments where I was like, this is so special. And you could see Diane experimenting with form, with voice with elements of horror and surrealism and in her developing like of sexuality on the page for her women characters and I just thought that was so incredible.
0: Yeah, it's very it's very feminist. I agree. It has incredibly modern feminist overtones. At least same question to you. I will say
5: the stories that I do love and I think I was say to people, have you read this story yet or read this story? It's Spider's Cry mm. Without Tears. Now, when I saw the title, I was quite dubious. I was like, what is this title? But I just thought it was a fantastic story. It took me by surprise. Yes. And I just loved it for that, just for its depiction of that relationship and it just you know when you think it's going to be one thing and she just blindsides you with something else and it turns something else and it's about gender it's not necessarily about race and how you just come to that story so I love that I love The Visitor just for that relationship with the daughter coming in. And I mean, you know, there's a beautiful bit where I think she's driving away and she pulls in her stomach, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's just those little touches. So it's just that sophisticated, that observation is just incredible.
1: Well, as I've said, these stories are dated in the fact that they obviously come from the beginning of the civil rights movement, but they're so pertinent still today. There's one line in there that really struck me. She wrote, there comes a time that one can no longer pretend that situations do not exist. They did then, and they do today. So I commend both of you for bringing this book to the public attention. Thank you very much. Thank you, both Elise and Katie, for being with us.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. Our conversation with Elise Dillsworth from London with the wonderful, amazing and crisp British accent and Katie Racyon was so great to talk to all three of these women, Tayari Jones, Elise and Katie about the work of Diane Oliver, who was such a revelation to me. I, I highly recommend picking up this book. A reminder about the great folks who make the podcast possible and then a little coda from Tayari
1: Jones. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with Can Productions. Asal Asanapur is our producer. Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster, and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America, and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean, Vika Aronson, and Brenda Salinas-Baker at ABC Audio.
2: Thank you for having me and thank you for giving your attention to this really important piece of literature. And I too, I loved it. I loved it so much. I wanted to eat it. I loved it.